This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, and I'm sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz today. My co-host today is Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategy nor tied to an offer or sell of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. We've got two great guests today who are gonna discuss investment in commodities. But before we introduce them, let's bring in the other hosts of Behind the Markets, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. Professor, it has been insane out there. Please help us understand what's going on. (laughs) A lot of things are are going on, Uh, Wes. I mean, first of all, you know, I, I remember last year, uh, last week saying don't expect too much from the uh, meeting between Xi and Trump at the G20. And uh, and then uh, people said, oh, look, they come to an, an agreement. I said, are you sure that's an agreement? <laughs> and people are now saying, well, I'm not sure now that that was some agreement over there. So obviously, the, you know, tensions with China have, have uh, flared again. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, the big news this morning, obviously, was uh, another payroll, an important to last payroll report before the next FOMC meeting. And, uh, I mean, we have shift. This is my summary. It's not a disaster out there. It's not like we're falling off a cliff. Um, and I don't think we're heading into a me- any sort of immediate recession. But I do think there is a downshifting of uh, growth and we certainly see that i mean i'm i think the biggest surprise certainly in the markets is not a volatility of stocks but who would have expected the 10-year to drop all the way down you know back down below three to 288 uh it's seeing a slowdown not only in inflation but in economic growth um the forecasters i look at now uh, are in the low twos for this quarter um so i mean that's a a distinct uh, downshifting, and they're lowering 2019 expectations. The biggest expectations are the lowering of those earnings, and that's what's keeping the stock prices lit on a lid on a lid on them. However, all that being said, I mean, with a 288 long bond, and you know, not m- very little competition from fixed income anymore. Um, you know, stocks are are long-run attractive to me. It doesn't mean that they're going to be, you know, short-run, not going to have more volatility. Um, but uh, even with a milder earnings forecast in the 2019, you know, you're picking up, you know, price earnings ratios of 15 now, 16 now, very, very reasonable in a, in a low interest rate environment. Yeah. Professor, we have uh, some commodity experts in today. you have any opinions or insights on the big move in oil or anything in yeah, the commodity well, today, uh, you know, it, it definitely shot up on, you know, news that, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is going to cut output. I mean, we're having so much news, you know, that the U.S. has just become a net exporter of crude oil for the first time in, what, 70 years. I mean, that's, that's certainly very, very uh, important uh, over there. So, I mean, there's lots going on in, in that complex. Uh, one should remember, though, I mean, oil is what we call positive beta asset. Real, I mean, it is. I mean, it, if economic activity goes up, it'll go up. If economic activity goes down, it'll go down. And um, so I think some of the break that we've seen is not only good output on the United States and a nice surge over there, but certainly, you know, part of it's related to the worries about a global downshift of growth which I think does uh, put pressure 
on that. However, uh, you know, I'm not a, an oil. When people ask me, Jeremy, what do you think the long-term oil price is? I try to say 60 uh, because that's what some experts once you know told me looking at everything. Um, and uh, I think if you look at the forward market, you 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 get it around 60. But I hear others that you know, with a slowdown, thinking we're going to go below 50. So I mean, it would be really interesting. You're, you're you know you're uh, the people you're interviewing today, whether they they think it's going down. Also, gold is getting a little bit of a shine, a little bit of a of a push upward as Bitcoin continues to disintegrate. Bitcoin down 10 percent today. Wow. Um, gold is really, if you want to talk about an alternative, it is the only one. So if you don't like paper money, don't like Bitcoin. I don't. Uh, I like. Uh, I mean, gold is is better than that. Yeah, well, I think it's smart that uh, you don't make predictions on oil. Uh, I can't even name or think of someone, any expert, who's ever actually been able to predict it. So uh, I think taking <laughs> the more a... The think they yeah. know, the less, less good they are. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I, uh, you know, the, I mean, well, one thing we should realize, I mean, we, you know, that crushing decline that we had in 2016 down to below 30 was, you know, a super shocker, and then it, it bounced all the way back up, uh, you know, and, and almost hit 80 just two months ago. Who who predicted this big decline? I think the downshifting of growth plus the big uh, surge of supply that we've seen in the U.S. is uh, probably the the two reasons. Um, but you know, could you could you have predicted that uh, six eight weeks ago? Not likely. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you, Professor. Uh, great insights as always, and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you very much for having me, Wes. You got it. So turn back to the studio here, and as mentioned at the top, we're going to focus on commodities today with our two guests, who fortunately are not going to make predictions about oil prices or gold prices, I don't think, because uh, we just talk trash about people that do that. Uh, but we're still going to get some good insights. And one is here in the studio with us. It's Gitesh. He's a managing director in research at Summerhaven Investment Management, which I'm actually a personal fan of, and I go to their website and read the research, and I've actually learned a lot from uh, Gitesh uh, and, and his colleagues. And the other one joins us by phone, and that's Nitesh, uh, not to be confused with Gitesh, um, who's the director of research at Wisdom Tree Europe. Um, we also have, I should mention, uh, probably most importantly, we have Lee Chen, who's another PhD. We have three PhDs here in the studio today. And she's also, I think, an expert in her own right when it comes to commodities, and she'll be helping me uh, interview you, uh, Gitesh and Nitesh. Um, so, Gitesh, you mind uh, just tell us a little about how you got into commodity investing and why you find it exciting? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for having me here. Um, so uh, I actually started uh, working on commodities right out of uh, grad school, and uh, one of the things that uh, attracted me to the asset class was the fact that uh, this is one financial asset that is very closely linked to the basic economy. So, and on top of that, this is, in uh, based on our research, this is the oldest alternative asset class. Uh, commodity futures started trading uh, back in 1600s in Japan. So the Dojima Rice Exchange uh, was the first commodity futures that uh, started trading. And um, uh, commodities have been trading in U.S. since uh, 1860s. So uh, it's, um, it's, it's a forward-looking market because you, you bet on what the price is going to be um, a month, two months, three months down the line. So a lot of things that you learn in school, uh, you can see it at play in this market. So uh, I've been working on uh, commodity futures, uh, doing research and investing in them for... Uh, uh, more than a decade now. Wow, impressive. And do we have Nitesh on? I think, I think we do. Nitesh, you, you might give us a little yeah. bit of background on how you uh, got involved in commodities? Yeah. So um, I'm, uh, I'm an economist by training and background. I'd worked in a number of other areas, uh, including structured finance and just as a, a broad macroeconomist at, at an investment bank. But I joined a company called ETF Securities about six years ago. Um, and uh, ETF Securities is a, is a provider of exchange-traded products, um, but it started off with commodity-based uh, exchange-traded products. So the company created the world's first gold-backed uh, physically gold-backed exchange-traded product uh, about 13 years ago. And um, so when I joined this company, um, naturally commodities ended up being the mainstay of, of, my, uh, of my analysis. And um, 
earlier this year, uh, Wisdom Tree um, uh, bought uh, the, the company ETF Securities. So I, I'm part of the Wisdom Tree family, but I'm still uh, one of the sort of the resident experts within the within the commodity world. I think commodities, uh, just like uh, I share this sort of sentiment as uh, Gitesh, that uh, Commodities are truly rooted in some of the, the world's uh, real fundamentals, so it's easy to translate uh, movements in supply and demand uh, to uh, the underlying commodities, uh, probably with the exception of gold, uh, which operates much more like a uh, foreign exchange, uh, like a currency. And so, it, it, you know, there, there's lots of exciting different elements to the, uh, to, to, to commodity investing. And I, uh, I really enjoy sort of walking uh, our clients through some of uh, the dynamics that, that they can use to analyze the market. Okay, so hi, uh, this is Lee Chen. Um, Gita, just a question is, you know, when we think about commodities, we think about the oil, the corn in goods, but as an investor, you know, you, as a uh, investor who really cannot own an oil field or uh, or who don't own farms, how do you um, invest in commodities? And also, just to follow up is, why do you think investing in commodities uh, offers value? Oh, sure. That's that's a that's a great question. So when I started working on it, my first instinct was, okay, so I'm gonna put, I'm gonna buy corn and put it in my basement, and somehow I'm supposed to get returns. So uh, usually that's not how it works. There are two primary channels through which you can invest in commodities. You can you can buy stocks in companies that uh, are what we call natural resource companies. So you can you can buy an Exxon stock. Uh, if you buy an Exxon stock, you have some exposure to uh, oil as a commodity because they they explore the oil, they refine the oil, they sell the oil. So you can you can buy stocks in mining companies, and you can get some exposure to the commodities that they mine. So that's one uh, one way of doing it. You can buy stocks in commodity equities. The other way, a more direct way of uh, investing in commodities, is through commodity futures. So you can futures. Uh, the way it works is that. At any given day, right now, you can buy oil one month out. So you can buy oil for delivery a month down the line. You can buy oil for delivery two months down the line. So these these are markets that trade where uh, uh, hedgers and speculators and other market participants come uh, and find uh, agree on a price where the oil should be. As Professor Siegel was saying, it's trading around 60 long term. So what that means is oil trades out five, 10 years. So you can actually go on exchange and buy oil if you want to. Uh, futures, a lot, a lot of investors, uh, small investors cannot access futures market, but uh, there are products that actually buy futures for you. So you can buy ETFs or mutual funds, which will, uh, where you will put $50 and buy an ETF, and uh, then uh, they will invest uh, that money in uh, oil and uh, other commodities. So Gitesh, I guess uh, for our audience here, um, so you mentioned that you can buy the equities that do the commodities or you could buy the futures, which seems a bit more complex. Like w what's kind of the cost benefit trade-off and why would why wouldn't we just buy Exxon? Like what's the point of buying the futures? Sounds comp complex. Sure, uh, it's not complicated. It's, uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, that's how I like to put it. Uh, but uh, the two give you two different exposures. So if you buy commodity equities, you get exposure to equities, but uh, you get exposure to commodity through the uh, company, but you also get exposure to stock market. So it's uh, commodity equities have a very high, what we like to call equity market beta. So if the equity market goes up or down, usually commodity equities go up and down with them. So, uh, but you you do get, and uh, on top of that, you, you're buying basically a sleeve of a company. So you are not directly buying oil when you're buying Exxon. You're essentially giving your money, uh, investing your money with Exxon and, you know, the management, the, uh, the, the corporate structure and everything comes with it. Uh, commodity futures, on the other hand, is literally a bet on where the price of oil is going to be. So if you if you want to have a direct exposure to commodity prices, uh, the most direct way is through commodity futures. And uh, uh, you uh, again, um, if you if if you invest in commodity futures, you 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 can invest on in a basket of commodity futures. And uh, that is the the most direct way to get uh, exposure to prices and inflation. 
Got it. it Nitesh, uh, you have anything to add to that or any insights uh, from your side of the equation? Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with the Kitesh that uh, oil, uh, oil futures are very different to oil companies. Uh, oil companies, you're highly exposed to the operational risk and the, and the structure of, of a company. So, for example, uh, you, know, you talk about Exxon there, they are involved in both upstream business, so that's exploration and production uh, of, of uh, crude oil out the ground, and then they also buy that crude themselves and refine it into something else and sell that, so, which is called downstream business. So they end up being sort of a muddled mix of these two types of businesses, whereas if you have a clear view on where you think oil prices, as in crude oil prices are going, buying Exxon won't really deliver you that, that price. Um, it will give you something else. So if you really have a strong view on where supply and demand of crude oil is going, you're better off investing in the future or any proxy for that for that future. Um, that, that gives you a much more pure play on the underlying commodity. And that can be applied to all different commodities, whether you're talking about an agricultural product or, uh, or, a, or a metal or an energy product. Great. Appreciate it, Natesh. Just as a reminder for listeners out there, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I am Wes Gray, standing in today for Jeremy Schwartz. And joining me here today in the studio are Lee Chin Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, as well as Gitesh, who is a Managing Director and Research at Summer Haven Investment Management. And on the phone, we have Nitesh, who is the Director of Research at Wisdom Tree Europe. Lee Chin? Hi. So, Gitesh, um... If you believe the futures market is efficient, then why would you think that investing in futures uh, offers a risk of premium for, for the investors? So that's that's a very uh, interesting and uh, old question that has been explored by various economists. Going back to Keynes, uh, I think Nitesh can talk about that uh, far better than me because he's in uh, he's in England. But the basic theory is, the basic idea is, uh, that there are two uh, participants in the market. One is a hedger and one is a speculator. Hedger is, you can think of a farmer, uh, the easiest way to explore it is probably through a wheat farmer. Uh, a wheat farmer is going to have his crop come at the harvesting. But the decision uh, to harvest wheat, how much to harvest wheat, or whether to harvest uh, some other crop has to be made months in advance. So the wheat farmer is taking all that risk uh, of uh, what the crop I'll be able to sell it uh, when when the crop comes to the market, but uh, the costs have to be borne throughout the farming process. So what, what the farmer in our example would do is it will go out in the market, look at the price of wheat at the time of harvest, and say, okay, so I can sell forward or I can use the futures market to basically lock in a price of wheat and then I can uh, decide on how much to produce, what to produce and stuff like that. So uh, the futures market provides this uh, a hedging opportunity, what we call it, for the producers. So producers and consumers too. If you are a bakery, you can basically, uh, big operations like Kellogg's who's make, who has to make conflicts, they can go to the market and lock in a price. They can have the certainty. So for both producers and consumers, they can go to this futures market and hedge uh, the price uncertainty. Speculators are on the other side of that trade. They provide this price insurance. So the basic idea of Keynes is uh, that uh, the price at which um, the speculators is willing to guarantee is slightly below the price that is going to prevail when the market comes to basically cover his insurance. Uh, think of it as an insurance market where the speculators who are basically long uh, in this market are providing insurance for uh, the producers, our, our wheat farmers, and that's the source of the risk premium. Got it. Um, Nitesh, I wanted to follow up with a, a question, maybe just drive a little bit deeper on that, but when you look at commodities and commodity futures, um, like in stocks, you know, a lot of people say, well, you want to buy value, buy cheap stocks, or you want to do momentum, buy things that are winners. W what are the kind of factors that drive commodities and, and how they work in markets? Yeah, so 
If you look at uh, commodity investors, they they are very varied, just like the, the you see in uh, in equity markets. So, uh, what we do see is um, there are a large number of um, uh, contrarian uh, value based uh, investors in the exchange traded commodity world. Uh, so, for example, in oil, uh, when we see big price dips, um, we tend to see a lot of inflows into exchange traded commodities. Um, that tends to be different to the futures market, for example. So when we see prices fall in the, in the uh, for, for oil, futures market speculative positioning uh, also tends to go down. So, you know, you do see a little bit of different operations in terms of how exchange-traded commodity investors operate and futures market op- uh, investors operate. Um, that's in the oil sector. But in, for example, in, in gold, um, what we do see is that uh, gold investors tend to be sort of uh, price following both in the exchange traded commodity world and in, in, in the futures market as well. So, um, you know, what we can see, say, say is that uh, you, know, you do get sort of value investors, uh, but they tend to be sort of concentrated in some, some certain pockets and tend to use certain vehicles for access. Um, but then you also see momentum-driven uh, uh, investors as well, but then they tend to be uh, quite similar across uh, their, their sort of uh, their, their vehicle of access choices. Gotcha. Appreciate it. And then, Gitesh, another thing that's uh, unique, I think, to uh, futures is the concept of roll yield. It goes beyond like value and momentum. You mind uh, explain to the audience what roll yield is and why it's important in futures? So uh, the idea of roll yield is. Uh, from an accounting background. Uh, so essentially the idea is that uh, you look at the futures curve and you look at the shape of the curve. So if, you, if, if the oil today is trading at 50, that means that oil for delivery in the month of December is trading at 50. And if the oil tomorrow is trading at 55, uh, by tomorrow I mean for the month of January is trading at 55, that's the futures curve. That would be what is called an upward sloping futures curve. If the oil is trading at 45, that would be a downward sloping futures curve. And the roll yield is because uh, the futures uh, expire every month. So if the price of oil stays 50, you're gonna and you're invested in oil uh, in the front, you're going to sell that at 50 and buy the oil, next oil future, which is at 55. So that's that's the artificial kind of a yield that you get by selling at 50, buying at 55, or selling at uh, 50, buying at uh, 45. Uh, so that's 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 just the curve shape. You don't really do that. Like these are two really different bets. The first one is uh, the oil for delivery in December. The second one is oil for delivery in. January. Uh, so it's not like you're basically, it, it's it's an identical bet. The easiest way to think of it is natural gas. Natural gas in December or January is a very different commodity than natural gas in summer. So even though you might sell the natural gas in December and buy the natural gas in March, that's not a source of return per se. Uh, so the roll yield is an accounting concept, but it does tell you something about what the curve shape is. The, and that is where uh, there's a lot of information for investors. I think another thing about roll yield is, is in some sense, it, it does give you like a tailwind or, or potentially a, uh, a wind in your face at some level, right? Like if, you, if the future is below spot and spot doesn't move, all else equal, you, you kind of get this drift upward. So it's like a arguably a, a kind of a tailwind for investors. So uh, the most important uh, st- uh, line in that statement uh, was uh, nothing moves. So if, I absolutely agree, if nothing moves and oil stays uh, where it is, and uh, uh, so that that is true, but uh, the, the problem is that uh, prices do move. The information is important in, in the oil price. What that tells you is, so uh, if you think of uh, what that means is, if oil is now 50 and uh, tomorrow is 55, uh, which is okay, which is the normal market. But if oil is right now 50 and for the next month is 45, what that means is there's a shortage of oil right now because the investors who want, and the, uh, the refiners, uh, they want to buy oil and they cannot wait for the next month to buy it at 45, they have to buy it at 50. That can only happen when there's a shortage of oil. 
So the curve shape in itself has some information, but if a downward sloping or a backward-rated oil curve uh, where uh, the front price is greater than the next future price has information in terms of shortages that the market might be experiencing. Normal state of the market is what is known as contango, which is uh, right now it is 50, next month is 55, which is normal because you, you, you uh, as, as an investor, you have two choices. One, you can buy oil right now, and uh, or you can buy oil next month. For the producer, it is that you can sell oil right now or pay the sh uh, storage costs and sell it next month. So the next month oil price has to cover at least the storage of one month. So that's the normal state of the market. And that reverses when there is shortage. Gotcha. And Nitesh, do you have anything to add on uh, the concept of roll yield and why it may or may not be that important to investors? Yeah, I think in terms of commodity uh, future, uh, commodity investing, roll yields are important. Uh, so, for example, if you're trying to access uh, commodities through a product that tracks, say, front-month futures, if you want to remain a c constantly exposed to that front-month future, you have to think about what happens when the, the current contract expires. So you are, you know, uh, although Gita said, you know, it is an, it's sort of an accounting concept, but in, for, for, from a practical standpoint, if you want to always remain exposed to that for a month future, there is that roll cost or, or, or a benefit that you're going to gain through the index that you're um, accessing this from. So um, if you look at any commodity-based uh, exchange-traded product that's not physically packed, so it's accessing it through the futures market, you will see some sort of roll yield embedded into, into the product um, that's calculated by the by the by the in, by the index agent, um, and sometimes those those roles can be uh, quite uh, uh, quite quite large. And you do see, in, say, for example, in the energy markets, uh, roll yields tending to be quite uh, large. In metal markets, they tend to be a lot lower, and it tends to be less of a consideration for for investors. But um, for, you know, to put it into context, um, uh, back in October this year, we had very strong positive roll yields in oil markets. So it, the curve was in backwardation. Um, and so the, the market was feeling that um, getting access to oil immediately was more important. That's why prices uh, in the near term are very high. And so investors in uh, oil indices that were uh, tracking futures were seeing a lot of benefit from, from, from that backwardation. But that's turned into contango uh, a few weeks ago and this, uh, you know those investors are seeing a drag uh, on their investment as a result so um, and they tend to be you know, fairly moderate in in terms of uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of magnitude as well um, so you know even though an investor may see the spot price um, say move up uh, ten percent as a result of these rolls, they may see um, a movement of only uh, five to seven percent, for example, depending on how strong the roll the roll yields are. God, appreciate it. I, and just to follow up on that, one of the biggest questions I always get, I, I'll use my data example, is they see oil go up like ten percent, but the oil fund they bought, which owns the futures, only goes up five, and they're like, "What the heck's going on?" So, and that's all about roll yield, and make sure we understand that. Before we dive back in this conversation, Nitesh, I know there's a lot of action in oil today. You mind uh, explain to the audience what's going on and why? Yeah, so it's been a very volatile period for oil over the last few weeks, and um, uh, you know, really t today is sort of come 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 to sort of a conclusion of what, what's happening. So, the uh, OPEC group, the uh, which is a cartel uh, of uh, producers that produce about a third of uh, global output of uh, of oil. They've been in meetings over the last couple of days uh, to decide on uh, their production levels. Um, so we've gone through a period where um, oil has been in oversupply, largely as a result of the U.S. producing so much oil, um, but also within this OPEC group um, that there's been a ramp up in production in recent months uh, because they wanted to compensate for potential decline in supply from countries like Iran. Um, so coming into this meeting, the expectation from OPEC was that they would cut by some, some amount, uh, but given uh, uh, pre U.S. President Trump's uh, insistence on the group not cutting, uh, uh, th th there was a lot of market speculation uh, that, the market, that, that the group won't cut by anywhere near as much as required. 
That led to weakness in prices over the past few days. Uh, but in a very sort of late uh, announcement uh, to, to today, when the OPEC group met a bunch of its partners that it operates with outside of its group, they decided to cut production by 1.2 million barrels per day, uh, which is a little bit more than, than many market participants had expected. And they uh, announced that they are um, uh, g- going to sort of formalize its relationship with some of these non-OPEC partners a bit more. So they'll try to institutionalize uh, this relationship that they've had with non-OPEC countries. And that's been quite positive for the market. That, that, is sort of, is that ensures that this uh, infrastructure that this, this, this group has set up could last for a bit longer and absorb some of the market uh, excess in terms of supply. So uh, prices have rallied upwards uh, close to 5% today. Thank you, Nitesh. Um, so, um, Gitesh, what what do you think? Like, what does your model uh, is thinking about? Um, so, uh, the line that I really like is that uh, commodity markets are very easy to time, as easy as the equity markets, <laughs> and uh, we all know how easy uh, it is to time equity markets. So, you you can you can take it from there, but. Um, Forecasting is a very tricky business, and uh, what you need to see is, as Nitesh was mentioning, uh, the supply and demand. Uh, Obviously, a supply cut uh, has a serious impact. So uh, in in the case of oil, it's the OPEC production cut, and in the case of oil, it's also the the shale revolution. We are living through the last 10 years of enormous supplies that have come online that were not earlier online. Uh, the oil was not uh, um, usable. Uh, and you can think of in other commodities, like, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a swine flu and uh, hogs suddenly go up. And that's, again, uh, a supply uh, factor. Uh, what we like to see in our models is what we call the stock of the commodity. Uh, and the basic idea is uh, that uh, uh, if there is a lot of uh, commodity above ground or there's a lot of corn in the silos and uh, if there is a bad corn crop, you have the stocks to take care of the demand. Uh, if the stocks are low and then you get a shock, then the price moves violently. So uh, one of one of the uh, recent examples that we have seen is month of first first two weeks of November, natural gas actually went up forty percent, and uh, uh, th- that's that's another example. Supply uh, stocks were low, uh, lower than expected, and then there was a cold front that moved in into northeast, and uh, uh, everybody was like, "There's not enough, not going to be enough natural gas." Probably people. Uh, um, uh, made the assessment early on and uh, the price rallied. I don't know if that is going to continue or not, but uh, uh, the fundamentals of supply and demand and how much inventory levels, how much stocks are there of a commodity, uh, they they go a long way in understanding what where the price might go. Okay, so uh, just to follow up, um, it's been a little bit kind of terrible decade. I hate to use this word for commodity, but um, what's up and uh, what do you think, you know, what happened and what's, you know, the view going forward? Yeah, so uh, commodities have had uh, a downward, on a downward spiral for almost uh, 10 years now. Um, and uh, the easiest way to understand is to look at inflation expectations, not just inflation, the expectation of where the inflation is going to be. And uh, investors can look at break-even inflation, that is the difference between the tips rate and uh, the nominal and the real uh, uh, bond rate. And what you see is inflations, uh, the expectation was around 3%, and inflation has consistently come, that was around 2011, and inflation has consistently come below that expectation. So uh, we, we have lived through a decade where Consistently, there has been what in our jargon we like to call negative shocks. So you expect 3% inflation, turns out to be 
230. You expect 230 inflation, turns out to be 150. So even though there is inflation, but because it is less than the expected inflation, market has, there's a mispricing uh, in the market. And commodities, because commodities directly correlate to inflation, uh, and inflation shocks uh, uh, result in commodity price shocks. So negative uh, uh, inflation shocks lead to negative returns to commodities. And that's what we have seen. We have seen persistent negative inflation shocks uh, to commodities. So, Gitesh, I, I like that theory. I guess an opposing theory, and I'll direct us to Nitesh because he arguably might have been on the receiving ends of causing this, but a lot of people argue that the reason commodities have stunk it up so bad is there's too many products out there, too much capital moving in the markets, too many people making ETFs on these things. So Nitesh, what's your opinion on the so-called financialization of commodities and, and that killing the commodity boom? Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time believing that it's financialization that, that, that killed uh, commodities. I think we need to sort of step back and put everything in, into a historical perspective. We saw a very strong boom in commodity prices, mainly as a result of uh, China becoming integrated into the world economy. Uh, so that sort of happened uh, late 90s uh, and uh, into, the, into the early 2000s before the financial crisis. That was extremely large demand shock, positive demand shock, that pulled up demand from everything from uh, agricultural products to energy to, to metals. Um, but shortly after that, you know, with, with lags, uh, you start to see a supply response. So it's hard to get demand and supply to move up exactly in tandem, but we, does, we, we, you know, we're living sort of in the aftermath of, 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 the, of the supply response. Um, at the same time, China is no longer growing at the same extent it was uh, back in the, the uh, you know, the, 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 the turn of the century. So, um, you know, we're seeing a slightly softer demand. Um, you know, and I'm saying I'm saying softer. It's not like do, uh, China is uh, deceler is not not growing anymore. It's just at a sl growing at a lower level, and we've seen a, a supply response. Um, but after a period of very weak prices, uh, we are starting to see supply deficits now crop up in a number of commodities. So a large number of metals, uh, we, we're seeing the, the uh, actual mine supply being lower than the actual demand in each, in each year. So we're eating up on some of the inventory. So there is hope for prices to turn around at some point in time. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that is been overwhelmingly the biggest factor in, in, in highlighting why commodity prices have fallen in, in recent years. Financialization, I, th I think, you know, is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a nice scapegoat in, in many ways. Uh, you know, pe people like to uh, point towards uh, financial products being uh, something that, that, that's helped create volatility, uh, possibly in, in commodities. Um, at the extremes, it may be, it may be uh, you know, the excessive uh, speculative positioning in certain commodities may be creating a volatility at the edges. But um, going back to you know, what, what Gitesh uh, described earlier on, in any commodity market, you need not, not only the, com you can't have a complete commodity market with just commercial players. You need the speculative players to take the other side of the contract. Um, the, to, in order to cre create a deep market in any uh, one commodity, you need a lot of commercial players and you need a lot of speculative players. And the, the greater depth you get in, the, in that market, the more, the better it functions as an insurance uh, product for, uh, for, for the commercial users. Yeah, Gitesh, I know you wanted to follow up. Yeah, uh, so the, 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 what Nitesh said, the fundamentals of supply and demand, that, that is the one that is the reason what commodities have done. And financialization uh, is, uh, I agree, is a very easy scapegoat to uh, blame everything on. Uh, what we have done at Summerhaven is we, we there's only one way to, in our view to answer this question, which is to get more data. Uh, so we, we have spent last three years trying to get data back to 1800 because commodity futures have existed in U.S. in the modern form since 1870s. So we have very painstakingly uh, gathered data 
back to 1870s from newspapers from other sources and compiled a database of commodity futures prices as well as uh, what Nitesh was referring to as speculators and hedger positions. So uh, speculators and hedger positions are available back into 1920s. And uh, there you can see what is the ratio of uh, speculators and hedgers in this market. And if financialization theory is uh, true, then uh, maybe the hedgers used to be 50% of the market and now the hedgers are 5% of the market. If that is the case, I would agree that there, there is financialization. What we have seen is actually not the case. Uh, hedgers as a ratio of the uh, market used to be like 30 to 40%. Uh, in the 30s and 40s uh, that went up uh, steadily uh, to uh, almost half of the market being dominated by hedgers. And that has stayed surprisingly cons uh, constant. Around 50% of the market is dominated by hedgers uh, for last uh, 40 years. And even though a lot of money has come in, hedgers have come in in this almost a similar ratio. So the way I like to see it is, yes, there is uh, uh, money that is flowing into market from the speculator side, but because new hedges uh, are showing up, there is uh, latent hedging demand. So there are people who want to hedge in this market and there aren't enough speculators. Now there are speculators showing up and they are able to hedge. So the ratio of hedgers to speculators has been pretty consistent and at an equilibrium uh, in the market. So fair statement is the financialization hypothesis is probably wrong. I, I, I agree with that. This is not the first time commodities have gone down. Yep. This will not be the last time commodities go down. Gotcha. Uh, the equal uh, the in in the recent history uh, when the commodities went down was 1980s, where they had a similar almost a decade of decline uh, in commodity uh, futures returns, and that was also declining inflation in in the uh, in the Carter era. Great. So I just want to remind you that you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. If you have any questions about investing commodities or anything else we've talked about, we've got experts in the studio here. So feel free to call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, Gitanj, I want to quickly follow up a little bit on China and possibly India, since you are from there and you understand more. Between you and me, we have both the countries covered. <laughs> no, I um, talk a little bit how in both of these countries now they they not only have you know the their own commodity exchanges, right? How that's impacting uh, the financial market for commodities. So the, the price discovery is happening. So I, I can talk a little bit more about India, and I think you can feel about China. But uh, if I say something wrong, you correct me. Uh, so the, the, the basic function of the market where the hedgers and speculators meet and come and come up with a price, that is happening in the local market. So Indian market, there is there's a vibrant market in jeera, which is a spice, or pulses, which uh, stuff that people have not heard of, chana. Uh, and uh, th th these are big crops. Uh, India does have 1.2 billion people. Most of them are uh, eating a lot uh, of uh, vegetables and pulses. So there is uh, a lot of demand for this market, for the local market. And uh, these exchanges have come up. They have the volume. They are very um, uh, successful. Uh, similar to China, uh, China has a lot of unique commodities that they trade. Um, as uh, along with copper and stuff which is traded outside. Uh, the issue, however, in both the countries is the foreign investors cannot access those markets. So while these markets are there, they are growing and we, uh, we are watching them for, for, for both uh, from the point of view of looking at the prices and, uh, and development of the market. But for the non-Indian uh, investors, Indian market is closed. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for the non-Chinese investors, the Chinese futures market is closed. Yeah, I think uh, China is still, um, a lot of regulations are kind of still murky. There may be some ways you can through some local partner. Okay. Um, if you have a subsidiary um, in the direct uh, local, uh, then you, you can you can still trade. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nitesh, I wanted to direct something to you uh, related to commodities. Like, I'm sitting here, I got a portfolio. Um, how do I think about investing in commodities? Is this a good idea for everyone? Only if you have a you know an opinion on inflation, or, or how does one think about using commodities in a portfolio? 
Yeah, you can you can think about it in a variety of ways. Uh, uh, so if you have a high if you have a high conviction view on a certain commodity, obviously that that could be useful for for tactical purposes. But um, you know you know if you're not in particularly an expert in, in, in the area, um, it may, commodities may act as a very uh, useful uh, diversifier for your, for your portfolio. Uh, commodities tend to have a relatively low correlation with uh, equities and bonds. So as we all know, anything with low correlation tends to be useful as an additional item in, in, in a portfolio, it tends to uh, enhance your uh, sharp ratios uh, when, when including um, you know something with the with with the low correlation, uh, especially in, in times when uh, prices are rising. Um, but uh, you know, if you look at the commodity complex, um, you have a large variety of different components within that. You have uh, things like uh, precious metals dominated by gold, uh, which are a fairly defensive uh, pr- product. So t- you typically tend to find that gold prices go down. Uh, when uh, the economy is doing well, um, and, and by extension, when the economy is doing well, you tend to see equity prices doing quite well. So having something that does the opposite uh, is quite useful. So if if you do f- experience an equity market shock, you could see the gold component of your uh, of your commodity portfolio perform and act as a bit of a, a hedge towards that. Um, other parts of the commodity complex tend to be quite uh, quite strongly related to uh, you know economic and, and inflation uh, inflationary impacts. So uh, thinking about uh, energy and agricultural products, they tend to be very correlated with um, fuel and food products. And if you think about inflation at the headline level, uh, there are two big components of, of, an, of an inflation index and uh, having a little bit of uh, commodity exposure tends to be a very good uh, hedge towards uh, towards inflation um, and you know when when uh, thinking about uh, uh, you know uh, uh, adding a commodity to your portfolio uh, there are very there are various ways in which you can do that so you can think about buying a whole basket of, of commodities that have exposure across the, uh, the the full sort of commodity landscape um, or you could if you have a sector view uh, you know you you could sort of narrow down your uh, your your, uh, your your commodity uh, loadings into your into your portfolio. Um, you know, for example, if you're negative on, if you have a very negative view on energy, but you still remain quite constructive elsewhere, uh, you can you can pick and choose uh, components. Um, in addition, there are you know a variety of products out there that can do something more interesting in terms of. Uh, for example, uh, if you want to minimize the drag on your portfolio from uh, roll, uh, negative roll yields, there are products out there that, that, that can help uh, position yourself on, on the curve in a very dynamic way to minimize on, on, on the drag from contango, but optimize on uh, the benefits from backwardation as well. So, um, you know, the, the, the commodity markets have, uh, have come along uh, a long way over the, the past couple of decades, and uh, uh, exchange-traded products uh, offer a very um, easy way to access uh, uh, this market. So, Gitesh, this is a little bit like asking the barber if I need a haircut, but uh, what, what's your opinions on commodities and their usefulness in a portfolio? So, uh, I would like to echo what uh, Nitesh said. Uh, one at the portfolio level, uh, it's diversification. You, you, there are different reasons why commodities have returns. Commodities correlate to uh, inflation very well, so they give, they produce return at different stages of business cycle. So uh, they, they go very well if you want to provide a little bit of inflation hedge or a little bit of uh, diversification to your uh, uh, equity basket. What is also important is unless you have a view on individual commodities, uh, as a normal investor, you probably want to uh, invest in diversified commodities. Individual commodities can be highly volatile. And oil is a classic example. As we were seeing, it was 80, then it was 50, and now it has uh, 5% up today. So individual commodities on on their own because of the news and because of the fundamentals can be very highly volatile. When you put it as a basket, uh, you still get all the inflation uh, properties, 
you don't get these uh, individual commodity shocks. And the best way to think of it is uh, natural gas and lean hogs really don't have a reason to go up or down at the same time unless everybody is barbecuing. So there is no reason for these things to move together. Thank you, Gitaj. Um, you know, we cannot go without a factors question, right? Yep. <laughs> Since that's uh, all, all we work on. So when I think about equity, you know, typical value, momentum, quality. Now, what's the categories or, you know, what are the factors in commodity? So basic factor is, as Nitesh mentioned, was uh, you got to look at supply and demand. And when you look at those, uh, what is left after that is the inventory level. That's, the, that's what we call in the business residual. So the inventories or the stock of a commodity is the fundamental factor. Now, you can get to that factor through different uh, things that you observe. So you don't observe sugar inventory. You don't know how much sugar is out there. That information uh, will be available to you a year down the line. By that time, it will be useless. But you can observe it in uh, different things that uh, in the prices. So uh, what happens when the stock is low? When the stock is low, price shoots up. So that uh, points to momentum. So that uh, so the momentum factor for a different reason than equities and uh, other asset class does work in here. So you have a momentum factor. You have a carry factor where uh, uh, you uh, the curve shape tells you the information we have talked about in terms of roll yield. I like to think of it as an indicator of sh shortage. So if you, uh, if, if you are in steep contango or steeper contango, that's uh, there the idea is there's a lot of that commodity. Uh, if you are in backwardation or downward sloping, you have less of that commodity. So curve shape uh, carry uh, has a, is a factor. The other factor is the size uh, it, to, to some extent. So smaller commodities tend to have uh, slightly better risk-adjusted returns, but uh, smaller non-index commodities. So uh, like in equities, we have size, value, momentum. Um, actually, there are 99 factors nowadays, as somebody told me. But uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, commodities, we like to think of three factors, carry, momentum, and size. Great. Now, this is a little bit uh, risque here, since Professor Siegel wouldn't even put out a prediction on uh, oil, and he's smart on all of us combined probably. I, I got to ask around the group here. First, we'll start with you, Nitesh, but a year from now, what is oil trading at? Yeah, um, it, it is a dangerous job, but it ends up being part of my job because you know, my, my, my clients want a view, so uh, I'm, I'm willing to offer one. Um, I tend to hedge myself by being a little bit range-bound. Uh, so um, in t terms of Brent, um, I think that it could be anywhere between 70 and $80 a barrel. Um, and, you know, if you want, you want to pinpoint, you'll just take the middle of that. Um, and the reasons behind that uh, is that, um, yes, while we've gone through a period of oversupply, uh, with, you know, with U.S. providing most of that new uh, supply, um, today's cuts by OPEC uh, start to absorb at least some of the, uh, some of the excesses and bring the market uh, closer to balance. Um, but on top of that, um, the oil markets globally outside of the U.S., has been underinvesting in capital expenditure. Um, so while you know some countries have experienced some increases in supply over the last few months, that can only be temporary. Um, the, 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 the natural reduction in, in production from most countries as fields deplete uh, will take place. And the U.S. on its own can't compensate for that. Hey, Nitesh, so we've, we've got tightness. 30 seconds here. I got you 7 to 80 on record. Real yep. quick, Gitesh, what do you say? Dangerous business, diversify, invest across border, uh, across commodities. You guys are just <laughs> weak sauce. Uh, well, Gitesh, Nitesh, thank you so much for being on today's show. Lee Chen, appreciate thank it as you. always. And I also want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Everyone have a great week, and uh, go out there and check out commodities. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.